You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Now, as we turn to the reading and preaching of your word, O God, we invite your spirit to come and illumine the reading and preaching of it that we would be those who have the power not just to understand, but who have the grace from you and from your spirit to respond to your word with the whole of our lives in obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you were with us last week, uh, you'll know that in this season of Lent that we're in, which is this wonderful season of the church year, and we focus on spiritual renewal, this gift of life that God has given us in Jesus. We are doing a deep dive together in one of the greatest chapters uh, in the Bible, maybe one of the greatest chapters ever written, and that is Romans chapter 8. This is a chapter that begins with these astonishing words that we heard last week, that there is no condemnation, and it ends with the other astonishing word, there is no separation, nothing to separate us from the love of God. And so this whole chapter ultimately is about how this truest thing about you is that nothing can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is the most important thing that you could ever know, ever believe, ever live. This is the key to life. It's the key to hope. It's the key to change, as we'll see today. This truly changes everything. Nothing separates us from the love of God. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. So if you want to open your Bibles... Uh, or just just listen along. Um, I'm going to read starting right there, running through 13. So friends, hear God's word. This is absolutely true and given to you in love. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. How do people change? How does a person become the best version of themselves? I think that's a question that everybody cares about. It's a question that lots of people ask, not just in the church, in the society. It's a question that our culture spends billions of dollars trying to answer. How do we become the best version of what we were made to be? Uh, The the Irish poet, um, John O'Donohue, wrote this, to change, to change, 
is one of the great dreams of every heart to change the limitations, the sameness, the banality, the pain. To change is one of the great dreams of every human heart. I, I wonder if you could say that about yourself. I hope that you're honest enough with yourself and that you know yourself well enough to know that you're not the person that you could truly be. That whether it's because of things that you have done or that have been done to you or, be, or that we all have habits and vices and character flaws and destructive patterns in our relationships, that all of us, all of us fall short of being the people that we know that we were made to be. And it is, seems like such a difficult goal to reach to become the person that we know that we could be. So how does that happen? Well, last week, we just began to dip our toe into Paul's vision for personal change. And what we began to see is that his vision for change, for personal change, is so different. I would actually say even contradictory of the way that the world tells us that a person could change. Because the Christian vision of change does not begin with willpower, does not begin with a personal resolve, does not begin with a five-step plan to a new you. That the Christian vision of personal change begins with grace. It begins with a beautiful proclamation that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It begins with God's gift to you of total acceptance and love and the promise that nothing can ever separate you from his love and this gift of new life given to you in Christ Jesus. To put it another way, in the Christian vision of change, you can't do something new unless you are something new. You'll never do anything new unless you are something new. And this is what the gospel offers you, new life, resurrection. And once this happens to you, once you've encountered this new life that God gives you to Christ and deposits in you the spirit, we'll learn about that today, you can actually, with God's help, begin to become the person that God always meant you to be. That's what we're talking about today. This powerful process of grace-based change that is available to every one of us. Okay, so I'm just gonna talk about two simple things today. How you change, how you can change with the Spirit's help, okay? First, know who you are, and second, become who you are. Know who you are, become who you are. Are you all with me? Okay, so first, know who you are. I don't know if you noticed this, but our culture is sort of obsessed with this theme of identity. Um, it's everywhere, and, and it's, it even infuses all of the, the, the stories and the mythologies of our cultural narratives. So if you think about like our, our fairy tales, like Pinocchio, you know, he, he needs to know who he is. He wants to become a real boy. Think about great cultural mythologies like the Star Wars series, you know, um, Luke Skywalker and, and more recently Ray is, is fixed on knowing who they are, discovering who they are. And the prevailing mindset of our day is you are what you make yourself to be. It's up, it's up to you. It's up to you to find out who you are and to create who you are and redefine who you are. Basically, your identity is ultimately up to you. Well, against that dominant narrative, the Bible offers this picture instead of the self-made person, 
It says that your identity doesn't come actually from inside of you. It comes from outside of you. That your identity is not something that, that you create, it's something that you receive. You receive from the God who made you and loves you. And this is a really important theme of, of Romans 8. Uh, Paul has this, this drumbeat theme that your identity as a person is bound up with the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't use this phrase in this particular text, but he uses it in other places. And I think it's one of the great important themes of the Christian faith, and that is union with Christ. Union with Christ. Union with Christ means at least two things. First of all, it means that you are in Christ. You are in Christ. Look what Paul says in 8.1. We looked at this last week. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you guys know that Paul never uses the word Christian once in all of his letters? He never uses the word Christian. Instead, what is the phrase that he uses to describe people who believe in Jesus and follow his way over and over again? They are people who are what? In Christ. That's how he uses to describe what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be in Christ? Uh, it means basically that we are so connected to Jesus that everything that ours is given to him and everything that is his is given to us. So negatively, that means that all of our condemnation and judgment were given to Christ on the cross. That's why we can say no condemnation because none of it is left. Jesus absorbed all of it on our behalf for us. And so everything that was ours was given to him and that everything that is his, his death and resurrection, his triumph over sin and death, his victory, his power, all of his accomplishments are then by faith given to us. This is, this is hard for, for modern individualists like us to understand because we don't have this sort of Jewish collectivist understanding of identity. I mean, except maybe in sports. Like in sports, like if you're watching soccer and a forward scores the winning goal, that goal is not credited just to that guy, but to who? It's credited to the whole team. Everybody on the team wins, even the guys on the bench who didn't do anything are like, we won, right? Even the, the guy, the fan at home on his couch eating Cheetos, you know? He didn't do anything but stuff his face, but by virtue of that man's goal, it is victory is credited to him. Does that make sense? Um, and so this is what it means to be in Christ, is that negatively, our condemnation is given to him, and positively, everything that Jesus secured in his victory is given and credited to us. This is who you are. You are in Christ. That's the first thing. But that's not the only thing to flip it around. Paul also says in this text that Christ is in you. Look, he says in verse nine, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And then he goes on to say that the, the, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead is now living in you. Did you notice um, how... Uh, and you might go back and read this, how Paul interchangeably talks about Christ in you, the spirit in you, Christ in you, the spirit in you. He interchangeably uses these phrases. Um, I'm, I don't wanna go into the doctrine of the Trinity right now, but this, the Holy Spirit and Jesus are distinct members of the Trinity. They are not identical and yet they are inseparable because the spirit is the spirit of Christ who brings the Christ into, into our souls. Sometimes you might hear a Christian say, Jesus lives in my heart. What do they mean by that? They don't mean that a tiny little Jewish man 
is like living in a hut in their heart. That would be very strange. What they mean is that this is a spiritual reality, that the Spirit has taken the very Spirit of the risen Christ, and he now inhabits your own very being. And this is kind of astonishing if you think about it. This is a little mind-blowing, that this same Jesus that we read about in the Gospels who served and ministered and healed and raised the dead and preached to the thousands and loved people and gave his life away and rose from the dead, that that same Jesus is now, through the work of the Holy Spirit, deposited in those who believe in his name. And so what this means is that this is your new identity. You are in Christ, Christ is in you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are united to Jesus forever. This is now fundamentally who you are. And here's the key. This dramatically changes what is possible for your life because your very nature is changed by your connection to Jesus. Some of y'all have a little bit glazed look on your face. So let me, let me, try, to, let me try to use an illustration here. Um, Batman versus Spider-Man, okay? This is, not, this is not a context of a DC versus Marvel. I know some of you care about that, but I don't. Um, I am just using this as an illustration. So Batman is cool, but he's really just a rich ninja, right? Like he's really just a guy who's rich, who has a lot of souped up toys, a car, and a suit, right? There's nothing that is fundamentally supernatural or super heroic about this guy other than what he's been able to buy with his cash. Does that make sense, right? I mean, I respect, you know, no shade on Batman, you know. <laughs> but compare that to Spider-Man, because Spider-Man, when Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man, he is actually changed by a power from outside of himself. When he's bitten by that radioactive spider, you know, he is given... There is something fundamental about his nature that has changed, that he is able to be what he could never have been before. Does that make sense? So what am I saying? I'm saying, in Christ, you are Spider-Man, not Batman. You know, that you, you have received, you have received from outside of yourself a gift of grace that has fundamentally changed your nature. You have now a power that you would not have had otherwise that you could never have mustered up on your own. And the per what's the, what is the purpose of this union with Jesus, this fundamental change of nature? Not so that you can swing from buildings and do cool stuff. It's so that you can become the person you were always meant to be, so that you can become fully human, so that you can more and more resemble the person of Jesus Christ. You now have the power to become what you previously could never be. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is who you are. You are in Christ, Christ is in you. That is the work of Christ for us. It is the work of Christ in us through the spirit. This is the first thing that's necessary for change, knowing who you are. And I would just ask you, do you know who you are? Have you received this beautiful new identity? Don't you wanna stop the identity games that are constantly making us try to prove ourselves and try to craft your own identity and manage your reputation and driving us into fear and insecurity. Don't you want to stop that? And instead just receive the gift of your identity as someone who is loved by God and in union with Jesus Christ forever? This is, this is rest. This is freedom. This is joy. Receive who you are. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Okay, that's the first thing. But the second aspect of this process of personal change is also 
is second, become who you are. Because you might say, okay, pastor, I hear what you're saying. If that's true, why don't I feel any different, <laughs> right? Why, why do I feel like the same old guy? Why do I have the same old struggles? Why does it feel like often it's the same old me? Well, we're gonna answer that question. But first, remember the logic. Remember Paul's logic of change, okay? He said back in Romans 6, we were therefore, listen, I just want you to look at this verse really carefully. We were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death. See, that's union with Christ. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Notice the logic here, right? It is not you perform, you live a new life, and then God will save you. It is you have been saved, therefore now you may live a new life. Do you see the, the difference in logic there? He says you are new in Christ. God has made you alive with Christ. You are raised with Christ. And now because all this is true of you, you have the power to start living this new life that God has made it possible for you to live. Uh, kids, I was trying to think of a helpful illustration for you, and here's one from Harry Potter. Um, you know, the first book of Harry Potter or the first movie, Harry Potter doesn't know he's a wizard. He's just living in Four Privet Drive under the stairs. He just thinks he's a muggle, right? He doesn't, he doesn't know. And all, one day, this nine-foot guy shows up, Hagrid, and what does he say to him? He says, Harry, you're a wizard! That was, how was that? that was, okay, yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, Harry doesn't know, he didn't know that he was a wizard. He didn't know that this is who he was. He didn't know that this was now his very identity by nature of his birth. And yet now, but he, he must learn to become what he already is. He must become by practice what he already is by nature. Does that make sense? And that is the Christian logic of change, is that you have been born anew through the Spirit. You are now one with Christ. This is true of you. This is who you are. And now you must learn by practice to become what you already are by nature. Does that make sense? This is a very exciting process. It's also very hard. And the reason it's hard is because guess what? Not only do you have Jesus Christ in you, guess what else you have in you? <laughs> a lot of yucky stuff, right? You have the sinful nature still in you. And this is the struggle and the conflict that Paul is getting at here in verses five through 13. He speaks here about the spirit and the flesh. You see that? Now he's not talking, when he says flesh, he's not talking about this skin fleshy stuff that covers your bones, nor is he talking about like the icky stuff of the body. You know, Paul's Jewish. He's very body positive. When he says flesh, he means the realm of self-centeredness, the realm of when humans live for themselves and their appetites. And when he's a spirit, he means the realm of God-centeredness, where humans live for God and for others. That's what he means. And that this warring economies, warring realms are at work in each one of us. Um, I don't know if y'all remember our friend Erin Rose. She was a pastoral intern here. I was at Easton Fellowship once. I heard her preach a great sermon on this text. And this is what she said. I want to use this illustration of hers. She said, in the moment of conversion, each of us, it's, in a way, you become a dual citizen. You notice how Paul says realms, realm of the flesh, realm of the spirit. One of these citizenships, one of these countries is called Fleshlandia, okay? Fleshlandia. 
Fleshlandia teaches its citizens that they are masters of their own destinies and captains of their own ship. And the only one you actually serve in Fleshlandia is yourself. And some of Fleshlandia's chief exports, as Paul said earlier in his letter, are idolatry, hatred, sexual immorality, greed, jealousy, fits of rage, disobedience, and selfish ambition. And those who live in the land of Fleshlandia are actually not really citizens at all. They're actually slaves to their appetites and desires. And ultimately, Fleshlandia has no future because it is a realm that is destined for death. That's Fleshlandia. But here's the good news, brothers and sisters. There is another country. And we, through Christ, can be made citizens of it. That through the work of Jesus, we have been rescued and made citizens of Spiritopia. Spiritopia, verse nine. You are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit. And where previously you had no choice but to serve the flesh, now through the power of the spirit, you can now follow the way of Jesus and follow in the steps of the spirit. Spiritopia is the only country that has a future. It is the way that leads to life. So Paul is now saying, now, your primary citizenship is spiritopia. You have an obligation, he says, verse 12, to live according to this new identity. Live in such a way that now demonstrates that your truest citizenship is no longer in that realm of the flesh, but is now in the realm of the spirit. Become who you now are, a citizen of the new creation, a citizen of the spirit land. Does that make sense? Now, how do you do this? Well, Paul gets really practical. This doesn't happen automatically. Life in the spirit does call for our active participation. Is this work of becoming a totally new person, becoming a new person in Christ, is this God's work or is this your work? Yes. Yes. Uh, it, 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 it is indeed the work of the spirit in us and yet the spirit invites us into active intentional participation with the spirit in the process of personal change. Does that make sense? So there's two things that Paul says we can do. Um, I, I, he, he, he says two things. He says, put things to death, set your mind on the spirit, okay? The old time theologians would say mortification, which I love. Don't you just love that word? Mortification. It means like put to death. Sorry, is that weird? I said it like that. Yeah, thanks, Brooke. Um, uh, and then aspiration. But we're, we're not gonna use those old-timey terms. We're just gonna say put to death, set mind on the spirit. Okay, so put to death first. Look, verse 13. If by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The actual word here that Paul uses for put to death is murder, execute, slay, right? This is, this is intense, even violent language. Paul does not say, hey, it might be a good idea to cut back on the life of the flesh or, you know, try, uh, sounds, if it sounds good to you, try limiting your habits of sin, maybe during Lent. You know, no, he says, kill them, murder them. Uh, and, this, and this isn't just Paul, this is Jesus. Jesus said, he, Jesus actually defined the entire life of discipleship as death, as putting to death Daily, if your right eye causes you to sin, he said, tear it out and throw it away. See, Jesus and Paul were on the same page on this stuff. And the point is, wage violent war on your inner fleshlandian. And we all got one inside of us, right? Practice 
putting sin to death. The attitudes, behaviors, desires of fleshlandia have no place in the new realm in which you live. And so do everything you can to put them to death. And now this is not only something that the spirit of God in you gives you the desire to do, you find yourself more and more wanting to live in the land of spiritopia, no longer wanting to return to the habits and the behaviors of the past, but actually now through the spirit, you have the power to do it. You actually have the agency of God himself living in you to enable you to live this new life. Putting sin to death means not only paying attention to your behavior, but also to your motives, the things below the surface, the desires. And this is actually a great thing to do during Lent is to not just look at the behaviors we wanna change, but go deeper to see what are the desires behind those behaviors, right? What do you really want? What is it that you love the most? What is it that gives you the most meaning? What's going on in our hearts that gives rise to behaving in ways that contradict our new citizenship, our new identity as those who live in Spiritopia? Think of your soul like a garden. And for those of you who garden, um, do you just weed once in the beginning of the gardening season? No, how many times do you have to get out there? Over and over and over again, right? And you have to be vigilant. And you have to not just pick up those little green things on the top to stick out of the soil. You gotta go under the soil to get at the root. And this is what Paul's vision. He says that living in the spirit requires this active act of vigilantly pulling the roots from the garden that the spirit of God may bring forth the harvest. And you're doing this with his power, okay? That's put to death. Second though, he says, set your minds. This is the positive side. He says, those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So the call is not only to cut our ties to Fleshlandia, but then to practice your new identity as a citizen of Spiritopia. And this means practicing a mindset that pays attention to the things of the spirit. What does it mean to set your mind on something? It means to focus your attention, right? Focus your, your thoughts, what preoccupies you, what motivates you. And I just want to be clear, Paul is not saying here that, um, you know, like lots of Maybe our grandmas told us growing up, this does not mean you should only listen to Christian music and never watch sports or movies or never watch Netflix. That's not what this means, okay? What this means instead is to take great care in the way that you think about and talk to yourself about who you are and what you most need. Take great care to paying attention to what you believe is most true about who you are and the God who loves you. Paul Tripp says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you talk to yourself. Did you get me on that? Nobody is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you talk to yourself. All day long, you are having a constant internal conversation with yourself in which you interpret and translate everything that is happening to you through a filter about your own identity. Does that make sense? So what do you regularly tell yourself about yourself? What do you regularly tell yourself about your circumstances, about God? Do your words to yourself encourage faith, hope, and love, or do your words to yourself stimulate discouragement and fear? Do you remind yourself of who you are in Christ, that you were raised with him, have victory with him, or do you remain stuck in your guilt and shame and hopelessness? Do your internal conversations help you live into the truth of your new identity, or do they keep you stuck? in your old citizenship, in the land of the flesh. 
Nobody, y'all, is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you talk to yourself. So Paul says, in this internal dialogue with yourself, Colossians 3, set your mind on things above where your life is hidden with Christ in God. Remember who you are. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Nothing can ever separate you from his love. This is who you are. Set your minds on that. And so, this is what it means in a really simple way to walk in the spirit. Put off, put on. Reject the lie, live the truth. Put to death, set your mind. Mortification, aspiration, continuous action, like the upstroke and downstroke of a piston or the up and down pedal of a bicycle. All of this driven, fueled, empowered by the spirit of God, very slowly we're able to become who we already are in Christ Jesus. Let me just give you a small example of this in my own life. Yesterday, I was writing this sermon. I was in an airport in Atlanta, coming back from Texas for a meeting. And I was literally in the airport on my laptop, and I got online to check out a source, and I happened to see an article or a social media post, I can't remember, about someone I know, a friend of mine, a peer, a pastor of another church of another place. And it was reporting about um, basically a great measure of success that he and his church had experienced. And I um, just want to be totally vulnerable with you here that my very first reaction was not, wow, praise be to God, the kingdom is advancing. My very first response was envy and jealousy. And I, this is not a one-time thing. I have struggled with envy for a really long time because one of the things that most drives me and, and, and a lie that I've believed all of my life is that if I'm really going to be loved, I have to be the best. And so performance and approval and praise that I receive from others has often been this nefarious, toxic fuel of my soul. And envy is a manifestation of that. When I see something that somebody else did who's like me, I don't praise it. I think, why couldn't that be me, right? Some of you are all like, this guy's our pastor? Yep. <laughs> I'm a former citizen of Fleshlandia, my friends. Um, so, so what did I do? I thought, well, I'm preaching a sermon on this. I guess I better do something about this, right? So, so what did I do? First, mortification. First, put to death. So that just, in my case, that simply meant recognizing that this was happening to me. Saying envy, I, I actually said to myself, I didn't say it out loud because I was in Chick-fil-A, that'd be weird. Um, I said, this is envy. And this is a practice of fleshlandia. It is living, I am living right now in the land of me-centered performance. It is me dwelling in a place where my life is about me and my own success, and right now I feel the insecurity that arises out of that. And the root of all this is a deep thirst that I have for approval and success, right? And so my first task at that moment was to recognize and refute it and acknowledge to the Holy Spirit in me, this is not where I want to live. This is not a pathway that leads to life. This is a path that only leads to despair and anxiety and death, right? So that was the first thing, to name it and refute it. But then set your mind. It's not just enough to kill the weed, but to cultivate new flowers, right? So what did I do then? Remember who I am. I am a child of God. I belong to the king. I have everything I need. I don't need praise and affirmation and success. In fact, those things never would give me a joyful, happy life. The thing that gives me a deep, fulfilled, happy life is that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And in him, I have everything I would ever want and need. 
Now, does this mean that I suddenly didn't struggle anymore and that I will never struggle with envy again? <laughs> no, not at all. But it means that I am slowly, I have learned to recognize this in me. And so, you know, I'm a little bit further along than I was 10 years ago because I see this pattern in me. And with the Spirit's help, I am putting to work this life in the Spirit that he's given us, right? And the key is slowly, slowly. The pastor Brian Loritz says, there are no microwaves in God's kitchen, only crockpots, right? God only changes people. God only changes people in that slow process of transformation. And you will fail and you will stumble. And there will be times whether you question whether the Holy Spirit is even in you at all. But he is. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The Christ in you. And he will not fail. So let me close. Life in the Spirit is about knowing who you are and becoming who you are. And who are you? You are God's beloved in Christ. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Nothing can separate you from his love. And if that's true, why would you live in Fleshlandia any longer? It's the way of death, right? To go on living there is a deep contradiction of who you really are, who you will be when Christ returns. It's a way that has no future. So friends, be who you are, become who you are, and don't be discouraged. You may feel like your garden at times is nothing but a tangle of weeds. I sure feel that way a lot. But below the surface is a powerful seed of beauty, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the one who is in you is faithful, and he will do it. He's making you new. Let's pray. Maybe just for a moment, you might just, in a little prayer to God, just name one thing in your life that this Lent you would love to focus on something that you desire God to change. Maybe it's a pattern of worry or shame or guilt. Maybe it's an addictive habit. Maybe it's a character trait that your spouse keeps telling you about that you've been lazy about doing anything about. But just name that to God. And you might just say a little prayer like this. Lord, I want to be new, but I know I can't on my own. And so I invite the Christ in me to do what I could not otherwise do. Remind me every day of who I am in Christ. And through the power of the Spirit, let me participate with you in becoming who you've created me to be. Do this in me for your glory. In Jesus' name.